Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper, current high school coach, teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Omari Stanko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And apparently none of the crap that Sean gave you about having a longer intro stuck with you, like no interest in adding anything to it. I don't have anything. Like you, you are a coach. You are a father, a husband. Uh, you just have, from a personal life standpoint, more going for you, Bryce. I'm just gonna let you steal the spotlight on that. You know, I, I do not have kids. Like I yes. just, like I can't comp- Like I just can't compete in those areas with you. So I'm just gonna concede that spotlight to you. Like I always say, you are the Pistons beat writer on a Pistons podcast. You are the most important person on this episode, on this show, on this podcast. With a close second being our guy, Wes Davenport, our producer, always blessed to be joined by him in the background. Even if you guys don't see him or hear him on an episode, he is always here. He's doing the outline. He's running the intro, the outro, correcting our notes, all of that stuff. The edits, he makes my life easier on the back end of this. So Always a big thanks to Wes for joining us as well, Amari. This is a, a co-hosted podcast with Wes being the engine behind it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take credit for that. This is a three-man show. I'm not the star. I'm a co-star. Um, and I'll let you have the longer bio until I add a few more life things to my resume. I have to earn, I have to earn those, those resume uh, builders, right? I can't just, I can't just put myself on that level yet. All right, so I got to get there. I got you. I got you. All right. <laughs> Complete transparency, you know we love to do that. We are recording this Sunday morning. So a little bit later in the episode, we will talk some all-star break weekend, stuff like that. The all-star game has not been played yet, and we'll talk about that. And since it's already Tuesday, and James Wiseman's debut was last Wednesday, but we felt like we had to talk about this one. It's the only Pistons game we have to talk about, Amari. So what else are we going to do? But it was anticipated. I don't want to say like it was long anticipated, like, but we did have to wait a little bit because of all the trade stuff. That stuff finally went through with Gary Payton II and the Warriors and the Blazers and all of that. So James Wiseman makes his debut last Wednesday against the Celtics. What were your initial impressions, Amari? Yeah, I mean, this, it, it is funny that it's, we are waiting until <laughs> just now, like a week and a half after the trade deadline, to finally talk about James Wiseman. Um, this would have been... Uh, the episode we recorded last Sunday because they had that 3 p.m. game against Toronto. So it would have been easier to just record Sunday night and talk about it. But didn't make his debut, so here we are uh, a week later. Uh, you know, I thought, like, just given that he only had one practice with the team, uh, like, we didn't, he didn't practice with the Pistons for the first time until last Tuesday, the uh, day before the game. Uh, that was the first time we, we talked to him, and he had just essentially sort of been in limbo for a few days. And he said he watched film and you know, whatnot leading up to that game to kind of prepare himself. But, you know, it doesn't really do a lot for you until you can really get into, you know, the actual flow on the court. So given that he had really no prep in that entire span, I thought he looked pretty good. I mean, off- offensively, I think just being able to see off, see some of the, the tools he has in his bag, <laughs> I'm tripping over my words this morning, um, was good to see. Uh, definitely a lot of the things that, we kind of saw bits and pieces of in Golden State were present, you know, as far as just the the, the touch he has and um, just his overall, I think, fluidity as a, a, a scorer. And then I thought he really tried hard on defense too. Uh, you know, still like he, I thought he got a ton of vision on offense. Uh, what do you want to see? Uh, there's some stuff he cleaned up defensively, but I thought it was in, in, encouraging overall. Like he showed some of this stuff that makes him a high upside guy, and clearly there's still some work to do as well. Yeah, let's start on the offensive end. So you talked about the tunnel vision. This is a guy, and you know we've talked about this at length. I'm not going to give the games played and the minutes and all of that stuff yet again. But he only has 40 career assists so far in a, a young career. 
But I don't think, I think there's two things I think that Pistons fans are going to get very frustrated with Omari. And I think that's one of them. And I'll talk about the other one here in a little bit, especially when we move to the defensive side. There was one clip in particular where I thought he drew like three people. I thought that was incredible. I put like in the tweet, positive, James Wiseman draws three defenders in a mid-post isolation rep. But he missed Hamadou Diallo wide open at the free throw line. He missed Alec Burks on the backside wing. Some people criticize me like, oh, they should have. Like, no, they were wide open, Amari. I, I mean, like, James Wiseman and NBA, I would have expected my high school kid to be able to make that read and make that pass. So I don't subscribe to, oh, those guys should have been somewhere different or he got fouled or they get fouled on every possession. So at the end of the day, I think this is something that he's just going to be, especially for the rest of the year. I don't think we're going to all of a sudden see Wiseman creating and making high-level reads throughout the rest of the season. And at the end of the day, I think he wants to make an impression, Omari. And he's probably feeling like he's going to make a better impression by scoring the basketball than if he has five assists. And and I don't even think it really, but I don't think this is a huge thing, but I don't think the passing is going to be something we see at a very high level. I agree. Uh, he also had, uh, it was like a second or third shot uh, in the first half where he's on the left block and, I think Corbett and Greg Williams doubled him. And, you know, clearly the scouting reports like overwhelmed this dude because he's not going to pass out of it, right? Kind of calmly makes the hook shot anyway, which speaks to like, the thousand number example where I think he had Burks open uh, in like the opposite corner or opposite wing. And, I mean, you know, like I'm, I want to say that that's an easy pass to make, but when you have guys wide open, uh, it's just as simple as keeping your head up. And, you know, I think he's played what sixty-one games, and he has forty assists, which is is, is not great. Um, I, I know a lot of the his situation in, in Golden State was he's not always playing with the best guys, not playing with Draymond, not playing with Steph Curry. It's, it's like garbage time minutes. So um, I'm not sure who he's passing to for those assists, but I think in Detroit, just off of the twenty-three minutes he played last Wednesday, uh, we can most certainly see that. He could get a few assists a game if you know just by reading the open man, right? And then now, if you're in single coverage, now you can just kind of you know post guys up like that. Just that opens your game up and makes life easier for you. So he needs to keep his head up and look for those. Yeah, and he also doesn't turn the ball over a lot either. So it's not like he's trying to make plays and then turning it over. Like he does have more career turnovers than assists. Don't get me wrong, but I think that speaks more to the lack of assists than he's just turning the ball over a ton. It's it's barely over one per game. The other thing I think that's going to drive fans crazy is the rebounding, Amari. Like he's he's not going to be Jalen Duran in terms of just his his ability to see where the ball is going to go, leap, go get it, you know, all of that. He's not Isaiah Stewart, just in terms of Isaiah is not physically gifted in the way Wiseman or Duran or even Mar- Marvin Bagley III are, but he just plays so hard that he goes and gets a ton of rebounds. So I do think that's going to frustrate fans that he's not the same level of rebounder, but he is seven foot and athletic. So he's still going to grab a lot of rebounds. There's just going to be room to grow there. And I thought we saw that at times as well, that he's just not a guy that's going to gobble up a ton of rebounds he had five in this game and so it's not going to be like an overwhelming negative it's just not going to be a super positive that maybe you would expect from someone at his side I'm curious what you you saw from him defensively as well because I thought that he did show some you know like some of the maneuverability he has you know as far as being able to stay in front of guys in in, in space uh, that you will kind of need to see from him long term because I think sort of the broader debate that you know we get into with Wiseman is is he a power forward or is he a center, right? And you you mentioned the rebounding and Jenna Duran uh, is obviously is really good at that. And there is a chance that despite Wiseman being a legit seven footer, he might be more suited to play power forward because of the rebounding. You have guys like Jaron Jackson Jr. and John Collins who are um, centers on paper, right? But then you get into some of their deficiencies. Uh, you know, where Jaron, he's not a good rebounder. Uh, John Collins, underwhelming rebounder for his size. And also the guys, that those guys can space the floor. And, you know, we're going to talk about wise with shootings too, but I think you got to get into what we saw from the defensively being able to move and then the lack of rebounding. And I, it, I, I, I just wonder if long-term him and Durant can work just because Wiseman's probably more suited to play against smaller players for that reason. I do want to talk to fit in general. And I will say, I think it works defensively. And maybe this is due to expectations, right? Because when the Wiseman trade happened, everybody said, he's an awful defender. He's He just can't play defense. And some of the off-ball awareness stuff did show Amari. It did. Like, there, there are some issues there. 
I don't know that it's even as bad as I'll say that he's better than Marvin Bagley the third on defense right now. No question. I would put a bunch of I money on that. that. Mm-hmm. I will also say this, and I think a lot of people are going to disagree with this. I think he's the best ball screen big on the team right now. Defender. I think he's better than Jalen Duran, just in terms of. I call it cat and mouse. So if you can envision this as you're listening to it, guys, in drop coverage, you're having to play in between the ball handler and the post rolling to the basket. And Wiseman will like stunt and recover, stunt and recover. Like he's like bobbing back and forth. He has his hands out. He's using his length. I think he does that better than Jalen Duran. He stays square. Jalen Duran often gets turned to the side, which makes it hard to recover to the roll man. I just think he's better in that. And then Isaiah Stewart's like fundamentals may be better, but at the end of the day, Stu's only 6'8 and doesn't have the leaping ability. Now, I want to preface this. This is James Wiseman in ball screen defense compared to the other Pistons bigs, not the rest of the NBA. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, harp on the Pistons defense later in the episode. So take that with a grain of salt. I just think it's been better. Even the film I watched, Omari, when I went back and watched the Warriors film, I thought the ball screen defense specifically and as you were talking about some switchability with his feet and athleticism was far better than what people gave him credit for he can i think he's a better rim protector than what marvin bagley the third has shown so i just think defensively there's a lot more there to work with than what he was given credit for and i know i've gotten long-winded here i apologize i think because of that he can be the ball screen coverage big and then Jalen during can play off ball and come over weak side rim protect Rome and all of that stuff. If you can find the right matchup offensively. So I agree with all of that broadly. Uh, I would say, I think the thing with Wiseman that, that stands out the most is just his tools, right? You know, like it's, he's, I think their biggest big on the roster. Marvin's around six eleven, uh, Duran's around six ten. Isaiah, you know, like obviously six eight. So not only is he the biggest big on the roster, but he is arguably the most mobile big as well. Like, I think, like you mentioned, the ball screen coverage, just he's, he naturally thinks to try to cover space uh, when he's in space, which is not something that all bigs do. And then on top of that, he really does move extremely well. Like, we see him run like a gazelle in offense, but just also just sort of horizontally being able to get from point A to point B. He's naturally good at, at that as well. You know, so I think that this gives him a lot of upside on that end that you just don't have from the other guys. You know, Darren is a great, you know, powerful athlete, like vertical leaper, whatnot. Uh, he's not quite as twitchy as James Wiseman is. And, you know, you mentioned, like, Isaiah, obviously. Like, he's 6'8". There's stuff he's going to be better at than those guys. But it's like the size is always going to limit him. Yeah, I'm, like, kind of getting back to that point, And I do want to debate, like, sort of like power forward or center. I think if James Wiseman can shoot, and that's the whole other discussion. But de- defensively, he probably is more suited as a power forward, despite being seven feet tall and, um, there's some assignments that Isaiah Stewart might be better with just because he's a little bit smaller. But I think despite being seven foot, you could probably think of Wiseman being a smaller player on defense and be fine. This is something the Celtics do. And it, it when I heard somebody talking about it, it's like, man, maybe the Pistons should try this. And they have. They even did it with Isaiah Stewart. Even sometimes when you see Stewart and Duran on the floor together, they'll put Stu in the ball screen coverage because he's probably still better fundamentally in drop and Stu can switch. And then if you can find the right matchup, it's all within context. If you can find the right matchup for Duran, where he can help off of a quote-unquote non-shooter or someone that you don't mind getting some contested threes off or even the occasional wide-open three, now Duran can be a roamer, and that makes his responsibility important but not as complicated as playing in the ball screen coverage. I want to go to the offensive side because I agree. I think we're on the same page. I think defensively it can work between those two. Offensively, I text you this after the game. We were talking about it. I didn't see anything from Wiseman on the offensive end in this one single game. And I tweeted it out. Please do not overreact or take your victory laps one way or the other from one game. I didn't see anything in this one game where I'm like, man, I really feel like those two can play together. That was me. Did you see any? I know he took the one three. He missed it. I think he's taken, if I pull up the stats real quick, He's taken 41 threes in his his career, so essentially less than one a game. I didn't see it either because the main thing I needed to see for them to be able to play together was for James Wiseman to hit a uh, three. And granted, what attempt he took wasn't really a good attempt. Uh, like His feet weren't really steady. He kind of stepped back into it. Uh, it was marked down as a three. Watching it live, I'm pretty sure his foot was on the line, so I actually don't think that was a three-point attempt. I think it was a long two. And I initially wrote it as a long two on my instant story. 
before going back and realizing, like, oh, that was actually recorded as a, a three. So maybe go back and check. But I'm pretty sure that that was actually not even a, a three. And that just speaks to how bad of an attempt that was that he couldn't even get his feet behind the yeah, line. Yeah, that makes, that makes it even worse. If your yeah. toe's on the line, it's the worst shot in basketball. Like, no question. So basically, no, really, we don't have any sample size of him as a shooter from that game, in my opinion. So that's very much a TBD. But the things he, he was good at, you know, which was just maneuvering around the rim, uh, like the post six, being able to shoot over guys, uh, those are center skills. That's like, it's good for a power forward to have that, but you want your power forward to have a little bit more range than that. And yeah, I think offensively, it would have a lot of the same deficiencies you have with, with Bagley in the sense that if you only get occasional shooting and most of this guy's bag is operating around the rim, it's just not going to work with Duran because you want Duran planted in the darker spot. Like you don't want him doing a whole lot of other stuff. Like he, like he could do some cutting and whatnot, but it's just, I just don't think that it works And long term, uh, or at least just this season. Like you definitely want to see some signs of Wiseman uh, being able to stretch the floor and knock those shots down. For reference, and I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to get a bunch of Cavs games watched here the rest of the regular season. You don't have time for that either. I don't have time for it. But they're going to be in the playoffs. So what I, my point is, I'm interested to watch the Cavs in the playoffs with Mobley and Allen. Now, here's the difference. Evan Mobley, even though he only shoots 23% from three, he has taken 164 threes already in his career. So there is, which he's played 128 games, so that's still not a lot, but there is a little bit bigger of a sample. He seems to be a tad more willing to shoot him than Wiseman, not a whole lot more. So that might be a good one-to-one in terms of does that lineup work for the Cavs? How does that lineup work? Because they have a backcourt of Garland and Mitchell. The Pistons hopefully have a really good backcourt in the future and Cade and Ivy, and we'll talk about Ivy and the Rising Stars game and all that in just a second. So I think that'll be a really good thing to watch in the playoffs for Pistons fans if you want to stay invested with the NBA season is how does that front quarter of the Cavs work in the playoffs? My other thing, Omari, is does it have to work? Like, do they have to be able to play together for this trade to be successful? Because that's what I hear everybody say is like, oh, they, they this front qu- who cares if it doesn't work? Then you just play Wiseman off the bench and you have a hopefully a really good five-man off the bench to spell Durin Whenever Duran needs, I don't think Duran's ever a 35 minute a game guy. Like he's probably 30 minutes. That leaves 18 for Wiseman. Even if you play him together for six, now that Wiseman's got to 24, I don't. I don't think it's a big deal if they can't play together. To the first word about Evan Mobley, I would say that another reason why that front court with Jared Allen works is because Mobley is a pretty good passer for a big. Like he's not Jokic, he's not Sabonis, but he keeps his head up. And he could do, you know, like the big to big plays where you're finding Jared Allen in the darker spot and you could play Evan Mobley a little bit further from the perimeter. He takes one of the three per game. He's not shooting it well at all, but there are nights where those shots will fall and he can give you spacing. So, uh, plus both of those guys are, are plus defenders and Mobley can defend in space. So, uh, offensively, not a perfect fit, but they make up for it on defense because that was one of these best defenders. Mobley's probably one of the more switchable bigs. And then Moby could also find some of those passes. And that's also a big reason why Al Horford and, you know, Robert Williams can work. Uh, Horford's a, a great shooter for one, so I'm not, you know, not ignoring that. But, Moby, but Horford can defend in space and also pass really well, so that alleviates a lot of that. So I think Wiseman, if he can look for those passes, we talked about the passing earlier. But also Duran being a pretty good passer as that's well. That's what I say. Duran's the one, the wild card with the passing, yeah. right, in this scenario? So, you know, so you have a guy in Duran who has showed some post-touch, but also can pass, right? And we know that Wiseman can also post guys up and operate from the low block. So maybe those guys can help each other out, right? Like you could, like maybe if Duran can develop some of that movie to his game where, you know, like he could find Duran down low, uh, you know, keep his hand up, that would alleviate a lot of that. So maybe you got some bros being switched around, but that can work because I do buy into Duran's upside as a pass. He's already made plays this season where clearly he's thinking, about more than himself in those moments. Uh, like, I, I remember the game, and uh, I think it was against Dallas. I forget who he found in the corner, uh, but he had somebody for like, it, it, it wasn't Dallas, it was a recent game, but he found somebody in the corner for like a late shot, and it was just like the extra pass and a really smart play by him. Um, so to your next point, do Wiseman and Duran need to work? Probably, I like, honestly, not necessarily. Like, I think just having, you know, 48 minutes of pretty good center play is a huge win, uh, you know, just for the rotation as a whole. And I say this acknowledging that long-term Bagley probably does not make sense for this team <laughs> anymore, right? You know, I think if they knew that Duran would emerge as a starter, 
as quickly as he did, maybe they go into the offseason a little differently. Um, so I'm just talking about this simply from the Isaiah Stewart, Duran, and Wiseman trio. All these guys can play center, you know, but I think Wiseman and Duran on the roster probably makes Isaiah more of a full time four, which is probably better for Isaiah Stewart long term. He started shooting the ball a little bit better, you know, two of his last three games. So as long as he can knock down those threes, you really don't not have a lot of issues with him playing power forward. You don't want him playing center if you don't have to, unless most teams are just playing really, really small, right? So Wiseman Duran, 48 minutes of center, cool. One guy comes off the bench, one guy starts. Like, you probably have a lot of maneuverability there. and uh, Probably not that big of a deal, honestly, right now. Just to have two guys who have a lot of overlap. My thing is, I actually like... I want to get your perspective on this before we move on. I like that Troy Weaver didn't let the Marvin Bagley trade and contract deter him from also going and getting a guy in James Wiseman that he believes in. I think that's where GMs make mistakes. What, what did they give up for Marvin Bagley III, Amari? Trey Lyles, Josh Jackson, and a second or something? Like, nothing crazy. And yeah, you can argue about the contract. I get it. I think it still eventually becomes a salary filler that, that ends up helping something happen, whatever that is. And if it ends up just being a bad contract at $12 million, then okay, there's been worse decisions made in the NBA. I don't think it's detrimental to the overall restoration in any means. I love the fact that Troy Weaver didn't go, well, I can't go get James Wiseman, who I love, because I went and got Marvin Bagley III. Whether Marvin Bagley III was a mistake, whether it was the right move or otherwise, I love that he said, no, we believe in James Wiseman, I believe in James Wiseman, and I'm still going to go get him. I actually like that mentality of not always letting some other decision deter you from making the next move. I agree with that, and I think that that is a unique quality for general managers that we don't often see and I think fans criticize that approach for Troy because it has not necessarily uncovered like a franchise changing talent. But I think if you just look at it from a resource management standpoint, and like like let's just talk about the trade for um well, one, you, you mentioned the trade last year, like Trey Lyles, Josh Jackson for Marvin Bagley. And people could say, well, Trey Lyles has been pretty solid. Like Josh Jackson, I mean, okay, like he was oh ultimately like that's not really why the trade was made, right? Um, and people could say, well, Miles has been a little bit better. Uh, Sacramento won the trade, yada, yada. Neither of these guys are really, like in the grand scheme, these are not the moves that really success, the that really decide the outcome of whether rebuilds are successful or not, right? Like these are just very minuscule in the grand scheme of things. So if both of these guys ultimately are off the bench row guys, and like, if you're grading them, like maybe Trey Lyles gets a grade or halfway better than Marvin this season. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, the money as well. Like, okay, probably didn't need to fully guarantee all three years, but in the grand scheme, the contract is not that much because the cap, the cap sheet is so clean. And also, you know, these deals are going to go up pretty soon. So, I mean, really, the money is pretty minuscule as well. I think that people see this as like a negative because it has not truly led to a big win for the front office yet. But that doesn't mean that the approach is inherently flawed. I mean, you know, because in the grand scheme, they haven't given up much to acquire these guys. So, and we've got to wrap up segment one to get to segment two, so I'll, I'll be pretty brief here. But uh, I also add that this trade, you know, Sadiq Bay for James Wiseman, they don't need James Wiseman to be the number two pick. They don't need him to live up to be the number two pick. They just need him to be better than Sadiq Bay. And Sadiq worked hard here. He was great to cover, like, talented basketball player. He struggled with consistency. And when you look at his numbers and just his style of play, from a rebuild standpoint, he's probably been as impactful as a guy like a Kelly Oubre, right? Like, if Kelly Oubre were 23 years old, had the game since had to think he had nine threes against the Pistons last year, he'd have a lot of fans because this guy could get buckets and everything else. But it's also not hard to get these guys a free agency. And I think the front office essentially said, Sigma Bay is a good guy, rotation guy. We're going to win fewer than 25 games again this year, so we need to swing for upside. James Rodgers' upside swing, it may not work out, but the overall trade, they don't need Wiseman to be like this all real talent to win the uh, trade. I think everybody would agree that he has more upside as well. And I think they're going to overhaul the wing position this summer. And at the end of the day, that might have put Sadiq Bay out of the rotation if you draft a Brandon Miller and sign a player or, you know, trade for a player or whatever. So, I again, I think big picture, I'm fine with the trade. We'll see how Wiseman looks. And I also want to make a point. Weaver also did this with Killian Hayes, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey. He didn't let 
selecting Killian Hayes deter him from then taking Cade Cunningham the next year and then even after that taking Jaden Ivey the year after that now it's not all one-to-one but I actually like that like you still and we'll get into fit like we're going to talk next week we're bringing on Adam Spinella great NBA draft mind from the boxing one and game theory podcast with Sam Vecini and we might spend a whole segment just talking about the Scoot Henderson at number two stuff but I like that Troy Weaver has taken this approach. But you're right, we got to get to a short break. When we come back, we will talk more about Jaden Ivey, how we looked in the Rising Stars game, how we looked in the Skills Challenge, and even talk about the All-Star break festivities in general and the NBA at large. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with segment two, and we're going to get into uh, the All-Star weekend. Uh, we're recording this before the All-Star game on Sunday because, I mean, I just can't imagine that game without anything we need to talk about. But Real quick, are you inter- Are you going to watch? That's my question. Are you going to watch? I-, I think I want to watch the the selection, like how they draft each other, and then I probably won't watch the actual game. I'm not going to watch. Like, all the highlights will be on Twitter anyway, and the game itself is just not that compelling yet. We'll probably get into this. Like, also, we can for me as a whole is like just all right. Like, yeah, you know, we're on we're on the same page. Yeah, man. and it's almost entirely the only interesting event is the dunk is is the dunk contest, and even that's really hit or miss. Like last year's was one of the worst I think ever, and this year's actually was one of probably the best one in a while. But uh, first, let's talk about the Pistons aspect of this. Uh, Jaden Ivy who was in the Rising Stars Challenge and then in the Scales competition. And I will say, as somebody who's been to All-Star Weekend, like I went in 2020 when I still covered the Grizzlies. That's not even I've been to. The event as a whole really is just for, you know, players and to have something to achieve and for fans to get them to watch some the fun events. But this, I mean, this in no means was like any sort of showcase for Jaden Ivey or and the competitions he was in, like the Skills Challenge is a mess. Uh, he, he was barely in the Rising Stars Challenge. I'm just like, oh, no. Like, it's cool that he was in it, but this for me, was overall a flop, I think, from a Detroit Pistons standpoint. Ivy got to showcase his speed. That that was it. Like, you could hear the announcers raving about it. I think it was in the skills challenge, and the time was running down. And I think in one of those competitions, you have to go essentially from one end of the court to the other and make a layup. And you could just, they were like, oh my gosh. Because we watch him every night, so we know that he's really, really, really fast. And so people who may not watch the Pistons, which is probably a lot of people that aren't Pistons fans and maybe tuning into this stuff are like, holy cow, he's really fast. Outside of that, like, what did it showcase? And again, not to get into this, the same was with Scoot Henderson. I was talking to Wes this morning and I know I, we knew this was going to happen. People were going to start taking the Rising Stars Challenge and somehow trying to justify who Scoot is as a prospect. Whatever you want to think about Scoot Henderson as a prospect is your opinion. I am nobody to judge your evaluation of a prospect or a player, but don't give me anything, anything from a rising stars game about a prospect outside of like what they look like physically, maybe what the jump shot form is mechanically, but like that that's stuff you can get from anything. Don't don't tell me about how he played in that game because I don't care. I agree. It's just not much. Like I, I kind of just really tweeted uh, when he scored his first uh, points in the Rising Stars. Like they said, Jaden Ivey's speed wouldn't translate to the Rising Stars. <laughs> I think I, I think almost everybody understood that I was being sar- sarcastic. Right? There's a couple people who were like, "Who said that?" or whatever. I was like, "Nobody said that. Nobody." The Rising Stars shot us in that actual basketball. It's just like they're out there have, having fun, right? Um, yeah, again, like it was like I think from like just like an onlooker standpoint, like the appeal of that is almost entirely tied to which players are playing well. Like if you're a New Orleans Pelicans fan and Jose Alvarado is just like that was a great showcase for him, right? He was mic'd up. Bro, um, he was funny. That was cool. Yeah. That that was the best part of the game was listening yeah. to him. Now that was now, now that was cool. He has a cool story, like he wasn't drafted, like he has his reputation is almost entirely predicated on 
just his, his pesky defense, even though I think he went off like 30 points against the Pistons earlier this year. Uh, like, you know, he looked like an offensive superstar that night. Um, but it was just a great, you know, like weekend for him, like for a guy who's not a superstar, a lot of casual fans that might have been like their first real introduction to him. The Pelicans are on national TV a whole lot, you know, especially with Zion being out. I just don't know how much regular attention they get. So I thought that was awesome. Uh, you know, Jaden Ivey, I think he played like six minutes in the first game. And, you know, I don't know what was going on with the minutes. He had a couple buckets, and I think he took a, a, a three in the uh, second game. But we just didn't see a lot of him. And, like, not that it's a showcase for, like, his talent anyway, but it was just a very different vibe compared to last year when Kate did win the Rising Stars game MVP. I, could, I, could, I can't name anything he did in the game. But from a Pistons fan standpoint, that, like, last year was probably more rewarding. And we should also miss him. Jalen Duran would have been in it, too, and maybe that would have shifted things. But he had the ankle injury, so he didn't play. And I do want to talk about that when we get... So, guys, here after the next break, we're going to talk about expectations for the rest of the season, specifically just for the Pistons. And I do want to talk about Jalen Duran and this break that he's getting some time off, not playing in that. So we'll touch on that a little bit more when we get to that part of it. I just... The skills challenge, too, like the rookies missed every shot in the little shooting competition yeah. thing, so they didn't have a great showcase. I, I think at the end of the day, it's about... It is what it is, right? It's a celebration of who have been the best players up to this point in the season. It's a chance to get these names out there. And so if maybe some more people around the league who aren't or fans aren't watching the Pistons, got to see Jaden Ivey, see that he's having a good season. I'm sure at some point in the broadcast, they mentioned his stats and what he's been doing. Then, then great. I just, I don't get, I, I'm the old man now. Like, I didn't even like the dunk contest. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't even like it. I didn't think it was that cool. I'm just an old man now who's like, just give me real legitimate basketball. And I kind of hate myself for turning into this already. But there wasn't a whole lot that I enjoyed from the Rising Stars Challenge to the festivities on Saturday night. I like the three-point competition, but they've changed it so much. Everything's a money ball and an extra way to get points. Uh, go back to the old way where every every shot is worth one. I would say, uh, well, one, the, the skills challenge needs some sort of overhaul. It's just I don't think the team format makes a lot of sense for it. And granted, I think the actual shooting part would have looked a lot better if the players could actually make their make shots. shots. <laughs> like, I, you know, like... like Me, you, and Wes would have won that, Amari. We would have yeah. won that, that competition. You know, like, I know it looks worse because, like, they couldn't hit anything. But, I mean, come on. They took, like, 30 shots and they only made like one shot, like I just, that made it look a lot worse than it actually was. Um, but, but but even so, like the best version of the skill shot is still isn't that interesting. Like it's just like an obstacle course. And I just don't think it's that compelling, honestly. But, like, so I actually advocated for the uh, game of horse. And then our guy, Keith Black, you dove chimed in and was like, I actually did that and it kind of sucked. So uh, that might've been a little bit before I was really watching the NBA. So, you know, Keith is a historian. I'm going to let him, uh, on me on that because, you know, if he says it's trash, it's, it's, it's probably wasn't a good idea. But they got to do something because I'm just not that crazy about the skills challenge. And I don't think it really showcases anything unique about the people who are participating in it. Here was my biggest takeaway from Saturday night. Tyrese Halliburton's shot is the craziest thing I've ever seen from a good shooter in my life. And this isn't me trying to bash on Tyrese Halliburton. I'm very aware of how stinking good Tyrese Halliburton is. He literally starts with his his shooting hand, Omari, he starts with his shooting hand on the side of the ball. And then as he goes into the shot, then he rotates it under the ball. And I'm doing it on the video like anybody's going to see this. So I look like an idiot right now. But he he rotates it under the ball as he's going into his windup and then shoots it. It's, it's crazy. And I think his guide hand, I think he's a thumb shooter as well, which I have nothing against thumb shooters. I'm a thumb shooter as well. So if you have something against thumb shooters, then get over it. But it just, it was the weirdest thing. And I'm like, no wonder people question the jumper with Halliburton. He doesn't jump on his shot and his hand starts on the side of the ball. So I understand why coming into the draft, people were wondering like, is this guy going to be a consistent shooter? Because those mechanics are very, very interesting, if nothing else. So that was my biggest takeaway from everything that's happened to this point. It's funny because uh, like, I guess we were thinking the same thing. We were watching the game. Like this guy wasn't, universally considered a top five prospect despite being an absolutely perfect point guard pretty much in college because they did not trust that shot. And it's funny because 
it was based purely on the mechanics because he was a great shooter in college. Uh, he shot both, like, well, both seasons. And he took them off the, off the catch, off the bounce. Like, he was a good shooter in college. And I'm looking at it now. He took over 200 threes, 237 threes over his two years at Iowa State. Hit them at a career 42.6% clip. He was above 40% both years. Like, he was a really, like, volume, accuracy. Like, it was both there. And just purely because people didn't like the mechanics of his shot, people were like, I don't know if he could do this in the NBA. And I disagreed with that really strongly at the time. I'm like, a guy has that many threes with that volume in college and that many situations, I don't care how he shoots it. He's probably going to get that shot. Like, unless it takes, like, a five-second windup, he's probably going to be okay. And his windup was fine. Like, it wasn't like the shot was slow. It, it was just the mechanics of it. And I'm, I'm sure he's tightened and sped things up a little bit since he's gotten here, but um, we're getting off the All-Star weekend and into, like, draft shooting philosophy now. But I always disagree with that analysis that his shot was something you had to worry about when you have guys like Isaac Okoro who couldn't shoot a lick but people just banked on his upside as a, a big wing defender. I'm like, I just, to me, I thought Halliburton was a clear top five pick in that draft, so I just didn't get it. I'm with you. I, I've grown in terms of, does the shot go in? At the end of the day, does the shot go in? I've said it on the podcast. I get a chance to, you know, come be media credentialed, hang out with you and James and Mike and all of that stuff, everybody before games, and watch these guys come out and, and do their warm-ups. And it's like, Alec Burke shoots this way, and then Boyan shoots this way. And, you know, even Clay and Steph shoot differently. I cannot blame draft analysts and scouts and everything else for having questions about the mechanics of that jumper after seeing it up close in the three-point shootout. I did not realize just how elaborate that form was. And so I, I just, I'm giving them a pass on this specific one. But overall, you're right. Like, at the end of the day, sometimes we have to value production over how that production happens. All right, now let's get back to the dunk contest because I, I I got to hear your, your thoughts on this one, Bryce. You said you are not a huge fan of the dunk contest, and I just want to start there because I thought last night's dunk contest was probably the best one since 2016. It wasn't quite as good as 2016, but that was a good dunk contest, and I think that that was probably the highlight of the weekend as a whole and would be because I'm not expecting much from the game. I literally just feel like I'm an old man, Amari, because none of it was like, oh, this is cool, this is impressive. Like, I... And maybe I'm a Matt McClung hater. Maybe it's like Matt McClung can't play in the NBA. I realize he's on a two-way with the Sixers right now. I kind of would love to know if he only got a two-way contract because he was going to be in the dunk contest and they wanted him to at least be on a two-way and not just a G League player and the 76ers obliged. But I just, there was nothing that like had me out of my seat. And maybe it's just, I've seen, I feel like I've seen so many dunks in my life like, you go back, the Vince Carter stuff was incredible. Like, that literally had me jumping out of my seat. I mean, it's impressive. Even the stuff Jericho Sims was doing, Omari, even though it, like, was kind of meh, he was extremely high off the floor doing what he was doing. Murph, here's who impressed me. I didn't realize Murphy had bounced like that. That was impressive. But I just, the McClung stuff, it seemed like the same dunk with just, like, a little bit different stuff every single time. Like, he's just whipping the ball around and... I never like the grab the ball off of people because I feel like they push themselves as they grab the ball. Like, I feel like it's a way of making it look cool, but they're actually, <laughs> Omari's smiling at me. I don't know. Like, as someone who's won a dunk contest myself, I was expecting more. Bryce, if you were doing what Matt McClure did last night, you got to put video proof on Twitter because that is, <laughs> this is the most you've ever sounded like a hater. This is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. This is crazy. This is, this is Matt McClure's study. So the dunk contest, like, first of all, how did you feel about the 2016 dunk contest? Were you amazed? Were you wild? Or were you ready to turn this? You're going to have to refresh my memory. Like, who, who, who that, was, was that was Aaron Gordon and Zach and Zach Levine. That was the one when Aaron Gordon did the crazy stuff with the mascots. And yeah, people yeah, okay. probably say it's probably the best one of all time. Okay, yeah. They're wrong, first off. Um, secondly, I do remember that one. The Vince Carter one is the best of all time. Not, like, he... He was in, it was dunk after dunk after dunk, every single one. And it was a bunch of stuff nobody had seen. But no, you're right. The Aaron Gordon one and Zach, because Zach Levine has stupid bounce also. So I do remember it because of the mascot. Like I can visual it. So yeah, like that one was cool. I just, I don't know. Like, I think I am. I think I'm a hater and I'm an old man and I'm pissed because I'm 37 and I can barely dunk anymore. And I definitely, my my daughter asked my wife this morning, I don't know why they were talking about the dunk contest. Maybe I was hating on it this morning before we recorded. And she asked my wife if I could dunk. She's like, can daddy do that? So I had to school her on what daddy used to be able to do. But 
I, I just, it was whatever to me. Haterade, haterade. <laughs> All right, I will say, okay, I'll, I'll give a few reasons why I think this one was a great dunk contest. One, um, what really sucked about last year's and most dunk contests in general is that guys bite off more than they can chew. So you have guys who think of these great dunks and then it takes them eight tries to do them. And it sucks all the air out of the room because it's like, you know, like if you were good enough to do this dunk, you would just got it the first or second time, right? Like it's just last year, it just seems like most of the concepts we're just waiting for guys to complete dunks. Like Jalen Green, like I think there was one where he just couldn't get the dunk to go down. Like they eventually were just like, I don't know if they just graded him when like they gave him like a grade for effort or what, but it was just it was, like it was awful. Like we barely saw the actual dunks. And this year, uh, like, first of all, for Trey Murphy and Jose Alvarado to lead off with uh, Jose Alvarado, like, the whole thing was just, like, scripted, right? Like, he gets the crowd hyped up, he goes for the attempt and then, like, rewinds it, and then he goes to the other side, gets his pocket picked. Like, just, of all the bringing somebody in for the dunk, thing, like, that's probably the best one ever. Like, most of those, I'm bringing a teammate in to help me or whatever. Uh, there's a spin where we just got gimmicky ones and you just bought some random celebrity or whatever on and it didn't really add anything. That one was great. So Trey Murphy was a great contender. And, like, the only reason why he didn't win is because Matt McClung was on a different level. Like, Matt McClung, the 540 reverse, like, just, I didn't know my original point was something to Matt <laughs> McClung now. But I was just saying, uh, for one, the Duckers were all, were all good, right? I, like, I was just, I, I can't get past the, the point that you did, are just, how could you say that about Matt McClung? Like, that's just, I'm going to abandon that entire point. First of all, the one where he grabbed it off of the guy, he was on his shoulders, right? He tapped it off of the glass okay, that, and that, then slammed it. Okay, yeah, yeah. That part was nice. You're right. That that was probably the one I liked the most once they replayed it and you saw the tap off the backboard. Because I didn't notice the tap off the backboard initially live. So that was probably my favorite one. But again, I'm telling you, they go up, they grab the ball, and then they push off and use that as leverage to get over the top. Also, K.J. Martin looked pissed at Kenyon Martin for some of his passes, talking about bringing on people. Like, he looked he looked mad at his dad for not being able to throw the pass the right way. Yeah, he did. So I would say, um, yeah, so, like, Trey Murphy was, re- was really good and, like, that. I would say uh, Jericho Sims, he kept putting his elbow in the room and, like, not really doing it. Uh, that wasn't great because it's like, either you can do the duck or you can't. You kind of get it to what made last year's worse. So, Trey Murphy and uh, Matt McClung getting there to the first try every time was great. K.M. Martin, he just had no charisma as a, a, a ducker. Like, some of his duckers, ducks were impressive, but he just looked so bored doing them that it was like, you know, like, get amped up, like, show some fire, you know, like, look like you're happy to be there. And Matt McClung, not only were his ducks, like, insane, he was also genuinely happy to be there. And, like, Okay, you mentioned like maybe he signed a teammate contract to get into the dunk contest. His G League stats are not amazing. He wasn't an amazing college player. So, okay. But still, I think they just need to get guys who can duck in it. And if the superstars aren't going to do it, if you're not going to get John, Zion, and like these other like, like extreme athletes who are stars to do it, then just bring in guys who can actually dunk. And I would say also, this would have been an all time great dunk contest if Shayna Sharp did it, because Shayna Sharp is. Like you mentioned Vince Carter. I thought he had Vince Carter potential just as far as the way he floats. And him and Matt McClung going at it. And Trey Murphy, who had some really great dunks being third, that would have made this an over-the-top great dunk contest. But it was only Matt McClung who was an all-time great dunker in it. And then Trey Murphy, who was like solidly above average. I, I will admit what you brought up about them not missing dunk after dunk after dunk does make it better. It makes the flow of things better. And so I, I did appreciate that from those guys that they tried dunks that they could make and and they showed out in the moment i'm i'm done talking about the dunk contest (laughs) and being criticized by you for not caring about it i want to get back to talking some detroit pistons and post all-star break and we will do just that after this short break just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with segment three, and we're going to look forward after looking back for our first two segments and get into... Uh, some things we would like to see from this Pistons team 
uh, somewhere around uh, 23 or 24 games remaining. Uh, Coach Bryce, I will let you lead off with this one uh, since I waxed poetic about the dunk contest last segment. Tell me, what do you want to see uh, from the Pistons as we get into the last uh, few weeks here? I'm going to continue to harp on it, Amari. My biggest thing, the thing I'll watch the most is the defensive improvement. I want to see something and just some stats. 29th in defensive rating, 24th defensive rebound percentage, 28th in blocks, 23rd opponent points off turnovers, 27th opponent second chance points, 29th opponent points in the paint. They're the worst team in the league defending isolation, 21st in transition, 29th pick and roll ball handlers, 27th pick and roll roll man, 29th in post. Like it goes down and on and on and on. Like I just want to, I realize they're not all of a sudden going to be a top 15 defense these last 20 plus games. I want to see some improvement. You know, I talked earlier. I think that James Wisen might be a decent pick and roll defender. So maybe that will help. I want to see, like, every time I tweet about Jay Nivey, I have fans saying, like, don't you think he's been a little bit better? Don't you think there's been some flashes? I want to continue to see more. So I realize I should probably just give it up and get over it, but I'm going to stay on it. I want to see some defensive improvement. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw some organic defensive improvement. Uh, from one, as the season goes on, we'll see less bogey and less Burks. For all the things those guys do offensively, uh, they're both minus defenders, um, which to me, like just the def- the defense for them is like this team sucks. So I'm going to kill myself with both ends of the floor, right? Like we're not like this team needs to pick anyway. So what am I playing defense for? Uh, yeah, we'll probably see them down the stretch just because they're over 30 and they're going to wind them down and get the young guys more playing time. We'll have something to play for. Uh, so you replace Burks and Bogey with more minutes for Killian, more minutes for Isaiah, more minutes for. Isaiah Livers, who I think just his communication can really do a lot for this team, but he's been hurt. And I think just having a guy who is an organizer knows where everybody should be, like that could probably go a long way uh, toward helping this team improve defensively. And then also the addition of James Wiseman. Uh, I think just him uh, being, you know, just for all the things you talked about in the opening segment about his upside on defense, he can become an impact guy. And I don't expect him to become like a top 15 defense, but we can see him crawl out of the basement and maybe get from the low 20s well, I guess from the the bottom of the 20s to the upper part of the 20s, that would be some meaningful improvement or something that they can build on for next season. And so you mentioned Isaiah Livers, and I'm so I'm gonna say Isaiah Livers and Hamadou Diallo as well is something that I want to look forward to the rest of the year. We talked about this a little bit, you know, with Sadiq Bay getting traded. And I'm not saying that this is a reason for it. I'm not saying it's an overwhelming necessarily positive, but a silver lining of this is Isaiah Livers is gonna get all the minutes he can want the rest of the season. Hamadou Diallo was already getting consistent minutes, and now he's going to get even more. And I think Hami has played really well. Um, the consistency's been good. He's shooting the best from the field of his career, best offensive rating, most points per 100, rebound steals, all that stuff is good. Again, I bring it up every episode. He hasn't shot a single three-point attempt since January 6th, and he's shooting 67% from the field because of it. He's, he's found his role. He's understood his role. I'm excited to see those two in 20-plus games the rest of the year with consistent minutes, night in and night out, and see what they look like and really be able to evaluate them, especially livers. No doubt for both of those guys. Um, like, it doesn't surprise me at all that they decided to carry Howie through the rest of the season. Uh, I guess one, like, I don't even know if they would have been able to get a second-round pick for him if they wanted him, you know, being a shooter free or pending free agent, right? Like, I don't know who would give that up. But also just the way he's really found his uh, footing this season, right? Like, just how... Energetic how good he's been in that row, giving up threes. I wrote a story last week about he is the NBA's best restricted area finisher under 6'5", or under 6'7". I mean, he's listed at 6'4", 6'5". And on top of that, he he has been so good down there. He's better than like a lot of centers. Like, he is genuinely an impactful weapon in his ability to cut, get downhill, and just how well he finishes down there. And, you know, I figure as they wind down Bogey and, and Burks, we'll see more hobby down the stretch as well. Um, and then Isaiah Livers, like he's been kind of hurt this year, but he still shot the, the three decently. And we still see the value he's provided, you know, just defensively as well for his communication. So Sadiq Bay's out of the picture. I think Bagley coming back will probably eat us in some of those minutes that are probably available for him now. But even so, I think we can see a lot more Isaiah Livers. And, um, you know, I think it'd be good for him and for the team to just allow him to kind of get his footing back under him after being hurt on and off and uh, set up more into that 3 and D road they need from him. 
So before I give my final one that I have, and then we'll get to some individual players, do you have any that you are like definitely look, just the team as a whole, either changes, storylines, adjustments that you're looking for for the rest of the season? Yeah, uh, Killian Hayes has got to get back on track. Uh, he started the season off really, really, really bad. And then he was pretty good for, you know, like six, seven weeks. And then since the Paris game, and uh, Dwayne Casey actually said verbatim last week that since the Paris game, he's been kind of struggling a little bit more. So, you know, I don't know if anything as far as him you know, going home and he struggled in that game. Like, I don't know if that did anything. But uh, Killian Hayes has, not, has really not been scoring the ball well at all. And we still see the occasional game where he's able to knock out a couple three-pointers. Again, like a player who's as inefficient as he's been, like you look at his season numbers now, he's a little better over the course of the season as he was last season, even though obviously he's been more up-down. Like, you know, previously he was just consistently not being great. Now it's, you weren't great. And then you were really pretty good for a while. And then you've kind of gone back to, you know, being where you started the season at almost. So uh, it's just been seesawing for him. Like he's got to finish the season on a strong note. Uh, like he'll be able to sign an extension this, you know, it's like starting this off season going into the fall. And it's just, uh, it's a proven mode for him. And we've seen what he could do. Uh, he's got to have that consistency because he's just, it's just not going to work out long, long term if he doesn't have that consistency, especially when the Pistons already have paid a premium in draft capital for Kate Cunningham and Jaden Ivey. It's interesting you bring up the Paris because I hadn't heard that quote. And uh, again, I always when I talk about this stuff, I realize we're talking about completely different levels. But whenever I was playing in college, I was 2,500 miles away in Washington, D.C. from my little hometown in Syracuse, Kansas. And I always, I never went home over Christmas break. We would get three or four days to go home and I never went home because I knew it would mess me up mentally. It would mess me up emotionally going back home, seeing my family, seeing where I grew up, which was completely different lifestyle and everything, city, you know, the nation's capital compared to a town of 2000 people. And I, again, I'm not saying it's one-to-one at all, but I do wonder if like there was just an emotional thing with, with Killian goes back to France for how long were they there, Amari? Four or five days? Almost a week? Yeah, they were there. Yeah, they were there almost a week. They left that Sunday and they got back, I think, that Friday or Saturday. Yeah, so he gets to go back and experience the culture. I'm sure they did those type of things where while they were there. And then it's like, okay, well, now I have to go right back and transition back into this in the state. So I think one thing that's interesting with him, and Coach Casey, I believe, has said this verbatim as well, is Killian has to get back to having fun playing basketball or finding a way to have fun playing basketball. I feel like he said it a couple times, and it seems like a real thing with him where he just – I hate judging body language, but it doesn't seem like he always enjoys being on the floor right now, either because he's not playing well, because he's fresh, whatever it is. And and that's a little bit concerning. And I had noticed, and I think some fans had even like brought up that Killian has struggled since the Paris game. And, you know, like, and I think just on paper, you kind of wonder if there's something there. I wasn't going to mention that just because I hadn't asked Killian personally if there's anything there, and I'm not going to speculate but yeah, Dwayne Casey, uh, I think we asked him, it was not even necessarily a Killian Hayes related question, but, um, you know, before that, that Boston game, I believe it was just a question about players as well. And he mentioned, we're talking about Killian, that he has struggled since the, the Paris game. So I think that opens the door to kind of wonder about that a little bit more. But I just pulled Killian Hayes' numbers up starting with that Paris game. Uh, and he shot like two for 13, uh, 06 for three. He did have eight assists, but it was one of his poorer shooting performances in a, a while when he had that. So in the 11 games, starting with that game, uh, he's shooting 28% overall, 21.8% from three on five attempts. Um, he's averaging 7.8 points. And that's like an 11-game sample size where he's shooting below 30% overall and about 22% from three on like pretty good volume. So it's you know that's a, a pretty bad snub to be in. Uh, he still has you know enough time this season to end things on a strong note, but uh, just his peak was pretty good starting guard. Uh, the Valleys are just like, since you're trying to win games, I don't know if you could justify playing them more than 15 minutes a night and like purely just for defensive and playmaking purposes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he's in year three, uh, you know, like a, almost a year from now, a little bit over a year from now, he could be a restricted free agent. And, you know, I started, started wondering if he's able to, you know, sustain these stresses a little bit longer because the season numbers are basically where they were before that, that, that good stretch for him was. And, 
you know, overall, you can't look at the stats to say this guy's not getting better, even though we see that he can clearly get to a different level. I'm going to be really interested to see what the Pistons do with him this summer, Amari, because the other thing, and again, we'll get into the draft in full next week, there are some pretty decent guards, point guards, at the end of the first round, top of the second round, some guys I like that I could see the Pistons drafting with their top of the second round pick, whether that's 31, 32, 33, whatever it is, and you could draft those guys, bring them in, and feel like maybe you could get the same production, maybe not the same upside, but the same production you're getting from Killian Hayes, especially if you feel like, hey, maybe it's just time for this kid to get a change of scenery. So I do. I think he may be the biggest, most important name to watch on the Pistons these last 20 games because it was such a bad start, then it got good, it's been bad leading into the All-Star break, but maybe he needed some rest as well. And the other guy we alluded to that with is Jalen Duran. What are what are your thoughts on Jalen Duran? Because it did look like he was kind of figuratively and then literally hobbling into the All-Star break. And I think this week off will definitely help. Yeah, like he was kind of limited by the ankle. Uh, it was like, I think his right ankle that he tweaked against the Raptors uh, that previous Sunday. And then here's the other ankle, so... Yeah, probably good timing for the break for him as well. Uh, but Duran has already shown so much this season that, you know, assuming that his feet, you know, feel good this time next week, uh, just pick up where you left off, honestly. Uh, continue to just show that continued growth and comfort you have on offense. Uh, show flashes of being the protector you are. Uh, the passing, I'm curious to see. Like, I don't expect him to shoot threes anytime soon, but I'm curious if they give him a little bit more room to uh, create for himself on offense, whether it's just the post hooks or anything else, because... Uh, he started to show some of that toward the end. And, uh, like, I don't know if we always saw that touch in, in college either, so that's really encouraging. But I just want to see Jalen Durant pick up where he left off. This has already been a slim but rookie season for him. You know, just hope mostly that those injuries aren't anything that will limit him down the stretch to just get back to where he was previously. I want to talk about the offense as a whole, Amari. And one I think I would like to still see is them play a little bit more in transition. Now, to their credit, they are middle of the pack in frequency and middle of the pack in efficiency. But I would be interested to know if you would like to see them play a little faster. But I also want to throw out these stats real quick because I feel like often the fan base is like, the Pistons don't run enough ball screen stuff. The Pistons don't run enough ball screen stuff. Here's your stats for ball screen offense for the NBA. The Detroit Pistons are third in pick and roll ball handler frequency, but they're 27th in points per possession. So not very efficient when the ball handler tries to score. They're bottom 10 in pick and roll roll man frequency, which means they're not hitting the roll man or this actually includes includes pick and pop as well. But they're top 10 in pick and pop or pick and roll points per possession. So they're running a ton of ball screen stuff and the rollers or the poppers are being very efficient. The handlers, Killian Hayes, Jaden Ivey, Alec Burks are not. I thought those numbers were interesting for the fan base to know just in terms of this team is running a lot more ball screens than I think the fan base gives it credit for at times but they're not very efficient and so I wanted to throw that out there but also use that as a way like do you think they should get out in transition more because maybe the half court offense isn't that great so I would say I think a lot of that is just some of that's like just young ball handler related right uh, like Jade and Ivy's a rookie uh, he's probably doing a lot more pick and roll playmaking than the team expected him to have to do previously. And I think on top of that, you kind of couple that with, you know, Killian Hayes been like the superior passer of the two, but also a really inefficient score. Um, you know, his mid range game has improved a little bit, but he's not still not necessarily like uh, taking the ball, like a pick and roll situation. You know, like we're not seeing the floater as much. Like, I don't know how many points he's like deriving from those situations, but a lot of those mid range shots are like dribble pull up situations right so i've either like at a playmaking deficit killian you're at a scoring deficit and you know of course during like he's a, a strong lob threat you know i think you can pick and pop with Isaiah a little bit more he's gonna pop to the top of the key um you have players who can thrive in those rows but it's just the overall synergy of it that's not really coming together and i think that yeah you could get out in transition a little bit more but it's still good for Jaden ivy to get those reps uh like it's still good for killian hayes to get those reps and in the grass game, just from like a development, like we want Jaden Ivey to be able to function as a primary playmaker if we need him to. Uh, it's probably you know, it's, it's pro- probably good for him, right? Like I think he can do a better job of locating shooters in pick and roll situations, but he's about pretty good chemistry with Jalen Duran. The chemistry with Isaiah Stewart just hasn't really been there this season, and that's just because uh, Isaiah Stewart's going to pop. He's not really got to get downhill. 
but now you have James Wiseman as well, and then maybe even Bagley coming back, and those guys can give you a lot of that vertical gravity you get from uh, Jalen Duran. Maybe some of that works itself out as the season goes on. Uh, and also, like, Cade Cunningham being, a, being like the best scorer that just he, he he could do everything right. You have Cade Cunningham. I think they probably maximize those opportunities a lot more. Uh, so just from like a pure rep standpoint, I think it's fine, even if they are leaving a lot of stuff on the on the table right now. Much as Boyan is the leading scorer on this team, he actually is one of the lower frequency guys in terms of individual frequency using the ball screen. So your most efficient, best score isn't the one that's getting the highest frequency. I want to talk uh, about two more guys, and, and we can do this relatively quickly. We all know Jaden Ivey needs to get better on the defensive end, Amari. There's no question. We get it. We understand it. What is the biggest area for growth that maybe Ivy could show in these final 20-plus games on the offensive end? I would say his biggest area for growth is finishing. Honestly, I think I think if he can just maximize his athleticism ability to get downhill a little bit more, that will go a long way for him. I think he has shot the ball better than we both would have expected coming in. Like, I'd buy into himself as a shooter a little bit more. But he also doesn't necessarily need to be, like, a super high volume, like, 38% three-point shooter. Like, if he gets to that point, like, fantastic. But he's already further ahead than I probably would have imagined at this point. Also, as a playmaker, he's further ahead than I would have imagined at this point. I want to see him... So There are times in transition where he... Speed, he, he he goes so fast that he's not even processing what he's doing, right? So he misses some, some easy bunnies at the rim. And even like in half-court scenarios, like he gets lost in, in traffic. And I think some of this is processing, but also a lot of it for me is just he needs to make continued strides as a ball handler because uh, his handle is not quite good enough to keep up with his speed. And he's just not breaking guys down as much as he would like. So all these things are kind of intertwined, and that's really like three or four things he needs to work on. But I just want to see him still make incremental strides toward uh, finishing at the rim because he's already decent at it, but he could get a lot more out of his toolkit. So I, I did some numbers with his shooting and I, I used Cade Cunningham, John Morant, Donovan Mitchell, all rookie seasons. I know none of these are like the same archetype of players, but so 16 feet to three points, Jaden Ivey actually has the best rookie percentage in that shooting area of all of those guys at 48%. So he's been pretty good in that true mid-range area there. And he's even somewhat in par with those guys um, from three to 16 feet where you're talking a little bit more of the floaters and that type of stuff. It's below, but it's comparable. Better than what I would have guessed. Listen to these numbers, Amari. On true layups, Jaden Ivey is 46%. Cade Cunningham in his rookie season was 52. John Morant was 51. Donovan Mitchell was 54. I did not imagine... This is what I would be saying at the all-star break for Jaden Ivey's rookie season, but I'm 100% with you. The mid-range stuff has been better. The three-point shot has been about as good. The passing has been as good as I thought, probably better than most, but he's got to get better finishing at the rim. And quite honestly, a lot of what I think you would consider for an NBA player, the easy ones. Yeah, I would agree. I think you see like pretty much consistently every, every single game, but still at least one opportunity where he gets – a clear one runway to the rim and just can't finish it. I think that that is something that is fixable just from the game slowing down for him. And also, he just has to get used to playing at his speed. Like, he is kind of like, like, I kind of compare it to, like, like the in, in Incredibles where, uh, like, I can't remember the kid, the name of the kid who goes fast, but and you've seen the Incredibles, right, Bryce? You have kids. I don't think they've seen the Incredibles at least once. I just want to make sure you understand this reference. I have seen the Incredibles in the background of whatever I was actually doing while I was, quote, unquote, watching the movie with my kids. So, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So the kid's name is Dash because I just looked it up. Dash goes fast. His speed, is, like his power is just that he goes fast. He's like the, the, the Flash. Uh, and like the first movie's fun because he is learning over the course of the movie just how powerful going fast is. So at first he's like clumsy and he's like not really maximizing his, his, his speed. But then he learns like, oh, like I can walk on water. Like people can't shoot me because I move faster than the bullets. Like you just see over the course, like he realizes he's actually pretty powerful. Jaden Ivey is learning how fast he is. Like he needs to, and he's leaving those opportunities at the rim because I think sometimes he surprises himself that he was able to just outrun guys. Like, in like a straight-up foot speed and transition, like, I would say at least once or twice a game, he just creates opportunities by going faster than everybody. So now he just needs to process the game at that same speed and not leave those opportunities on the on the uh, table. Yeah, that's because at Purdue, there was always a seven-foot-four Zach Eady standing in the middle of the lane, and it wasn't yeah. a wide-open layup opportunity. Okay, last one. My thing for Isaiah Stewart is consistency with the three-point shot and to stick to the process, Omari. Keep shooting it 
just for some reference, in December, he shot 40% on five attempts, really good, way above expectations. In January, he shot 12% on 2.9 attempts, obviously not a good percentage, and I don't like that the attempts fell. In February, so far, he's back to 32% on 5.4 attempts. I think that four to five attempt range is where I'd like to see him. I know he went through a tough stretch, and then like you said earlier, the last two games, I think it was before All-Star break, he shot it well. Stick to the process. Continue to shoot all the ones he should be shooting, whether that ends up being three in a game or eight in a game. And let's see how this plays out for a whole season sample size. Yeah, like it's kind of zigzag this season, but it's just it's just reps. Uh, Dwayne Casey joked the other week, like this is the first shooting stuff he's ever been in. And it's just like a whole process with that. Uh, like I still buy into it mock term. Like he was like red hot for a while and then he kind of cooled off. But just the fact that he was red hot for like a good month, month and a half, I think speaks a lot to how good he is at it already. So. Um, yeah, like long term, I think I've seen enough this season to say that he's going to be a, a pretty reliable three-point shooter, which is more you can say about the season already. And I don't want to say that if I got to knock on the wood because he's probably going to shoot like 18% and make this take age well. But I've seen enough. I think I think mechanically he's fine. I think he will end up being fine. Yeah, I agree. And there's a mental side to it. I think it's great that we saw him shoot it so bad and, and go through a sump, like you said, or Coach Casey said, and then be able to come out of it. There's something to that. There's there's a big mental side to this game. I just want to say, Sean Windsor did a great job talking about that on our last episode. If you guys haven't listened, when we brought him on to talk about James Wiseman. But this was fun, Amari. It always is. We got to laugh. You got to call me out. I was drinking the Haterade this morning or whatever the kids say these days. And so we, we got it going a little bit. We will be back next week with Adam Spinella. You may know him from the Boxing One. You may know him as co-host with Sam Bassini over at Game Theory Podcast. And we are diving two feet all in, whatever you, however you want to say it. We are diving fully in to the 2023 NBA draft on next week's episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. I know Amari's excited about it. I'm excited about it. Uh, take it away, my guy. Yeah, next week's episode will be like water at the end of the desert. Like we have talked basketball for so long and we have fun doing it. But at this point, we think most fans are ready to look forward to the draft. I know we are. Uh, Adam Smell is an expert on it and looking forward to having them on. So I think with us next week, we got a good one coming for you. Uh, so shout out to our editor, Robin Chan, our executive producer, Angelette Crawford. Also shout out to Wes Davenport. Talk to you all next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.